yep, that's right, I'm back. And I know, I keep promising more episodes, but I'm finally starting to get my shit together, so don't you worry. We're going to have, in very quick succession, a bunch of new episodes, as I've got so many interviews in the can, and uh, they're mostly evergreen, so it's not like there's any super rush to get them up, but I do want to get back to the bi-weekly schedule, so look for more of those. First couple things I want to talk about that are going on. Uh, my book, Sockopedia, has been out for a few months now. Get it wherever fine books are sold. And also, I've got a new book coming out in August, August 15th to be exact. That book is called Drink Like a Geek, and it's available for pre-order pretty much everywhere, so give that one a look. Today's episode features Mr. Brian Heffling. He is an author. He wrote a book called Distilled Knowledge, The Science Behind Drinking's Greatest Myths, Legends, and Unanswered Questions. Uh, We caught up a few months back in San Antonio. So here he is, Brian Heffling. When I was in my early 20s, I formulated a 10-point scale of intoxication, Yeah. Um, which, for the benefit of your listeners, if this part makes it uh, past the cutting room, uh, went, as I recall, buzzed, tipsy, drunk, sauce, sloshed, tight, loaded, hammered, fucked up, and shit-faced, in that order. Okay. Um, and sort of corresponding to, to numbers, and that was a, a useful metric for me to be able to say, well, I'm, I'm like a four or so, I'm sauced right now, I'm okay. As I'm tight, I should be concerned. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that that's a terribly useful thing for other people, but that, that is kind of how I've always framed my own level of intoxication, is there are 10 degrees and they all have their own appropriate adjectives. I feel like the, the bar staff, they're trolling us because... Um, I would if I were them. It's like, they're like, oh, there's a podcast going on. Let's make as much noise dumping shit out as we can. Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> Um, anyway, I'm not even mad, so just impressed. So you are Brian Heffling. Heffling, I'm, yes. Heffling, I got it right. Yeah. Yes, the O is silent. Tell me the name of your book. Distilled Knowledge. And what is the deal with that? <laughs> um, it's a guide to common scientific questions, myths, and misconceptions about drinks and drinking at all stages of the process. So starting at fermentation, going all the way to hangover, and covering everything in between. And the goal was to provide answers to specific questions in short, digestible bits of a few hundred words so you can read that section, get the answer to your question, and then close the book and resume drinking. Um, that, that was something that hadn't otherwise existed. Uh, Proof by Adam Rogers, which is a great book, don't get me wrong, but it's also sort of long-form narrative nonfiction style like The Omnivore's Dilemma. So if you want the fruits of that book, you need to read the whole thing. Whereas with Distilled Knowledge, you can, you can use it as a, like a dictionary or encyclopedia if you want to, or you can read it cover to cover if you want to. That was very deliberate. And so what is, what is your background? Do you have a scientific background? I mean, how did you come to write this book? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the relevant background here, uh, I was giving cocktail lessons around Boston, which is where I'm, I'm from and I'm based now. Um, people who aren't in the hospitality industry but who wanted to learn to make better drinks at home, wanted to learn the history of the drinks, sort of enthusiasts, I would teach them classes uh, about classic cocktails. 
And occasionally I would get asked things like, well, does, does grapefruit juice really get you drunk faster? Or do carbonated drinks really get you drunk faster? Wait, 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 wait. I never heard the grapefruit. What is that about? Oh. <laughs> um, grapefruit grapefruit is, is, a, is a tough, frustrating one for me because there are no scientific studies that confirm this or that refute it in any way. There's no evidence in either direction. I am a grapefruit truther personally, but the, the, the research has yet to be done. The claim, the fundamental claim, of course, is that if you mix grapefruit juice with your alcohol, you will get drunker or drunk faster. And the purported mechanism is the same as the very well-documented mechanism by which grapefruit juice increases the blood level of various prescription drugs. There are certain liver enzymes that uh, do an incredibly effective job of breaking down various drugs um, as a result of which the amount of drug that you're consuming for your blood pressure medication or what have you is about 20 times greater than the amount that will make it into your blood. And drugs are designed with that in mind. Grapefruit juice inhibits those enzymes so you will end up with 20 times the blood level of that drug as what you are supposed to. And your blood pressure, to take the same example, will end up being far too low <laughs> compared to what it ought to be. Um, there is a hypothesis that it has a similar effect on alcohol. Uh, no one has demonstrated that it works on alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the principal enzyme that breaks down alcohol. And the enzyme in the same family uh, as the prescription drug ones that it, we know it affects um, that does break down alcohol usually is a relatively minor player. So, again, no hard evidence for this, but based on my... Per and th in the book I say there is no evidence for this either way. It's been said, here's the proposed mechanism, I can't say for sure, but based on my own experience, it seems very likely that it is true. Seriously, huh? So, people better watch out when they're ordering a Greyhound is what you're saying? Uh, yeah, watch out if you're ordering a Greyhound and trying to stay sober, but I've never met someone who ordered a Greyhound while trying to stay sober. So, uh, if that's the case, I'd say go for it. it. It will do what you want it to do. Well, yeah, no, I think people who drink Greyhounds generally aren't doing it for the experience. They're doing it to get <laughs> drunk, so they'll get there regardless. So I'm, I'm a historian by training, and the Greyhound, uh, sort of note on cocktail history, the Greyhound's one of a handful of drinks that began as gin drinks and developed into vodka drinks as the sort of standard recipe over time. The Orange Blossom is the other one that I know of that was very much this. And, of course, we call it the screwdriver now. Basically, it was originally gin and orange juice and maybe orange bitters, and a similar drink is now vodka-based. Whereas with the Gimlet and the Martini... Uh, when it's made with vodka, we still bother to call it as a vodka gimlet or a vodka martini. But, you know, if you say, I'll have a Greyhound, you're expecting vodka, not gin. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know what the history behind... Actually, no, no, no. I do know the history behind the Bloody Mary. The Bloody Mary was another one of those gin drinks. started as a gin drink, and then it moved to... The, I mean, they called... That's funny. Am I correct about that? No, no, well, I'm not. I'm no, not. No, no, I I'm, think I'm you getting, are. I'm not, I don't know. I'm getting confused because... I know at one time they called it the and here's here this is a, there's a lot of stories associated with how the Bloody Mary was was started and I'm probably you probably know more about this than I do I don't know I'm just like Jeff explaining but um, is is that a podcast term? Will your listeners I just made, recognize I just that? I just made it up right now. But <laughs> here's here's the thing. 
I was reading that originally the bloody and, and you can jump and correct me if I'm wrong in any place here. Oh, if you're wrong, I will jump in and correct you when you have finished. Okay, well that's fine. I'll let the wrong that's thing fine. get out that, there that's first. That's fine. You can do that. That's more then, fun. You know, hang me out to dry like that. <laughs> embarrass me. I'm the one who edits this anyway, so. Um, uh, so anyway, so I was reading that originally. Um, it started, I believe, in the UK, probably London. Um, and it was sort of created because all of these Russian refugees during the revolution were, you know, settling in the UK, bringing. Interesting. Um, I don't know, was it called the UK then? <laughs> um, we're, we're settling in. It, it was. It was. Because it was called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Okay. Before the secession of Ireland that yeah, made it the United Britain, Kingdom of Great, Great Britain, Britain and Northern, Northern Ireland. Ireland. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So, um, so, so they were settling there, um, and they were bringing a lot of vodka with them. Vodka wasn't really a thing in Western culture. I mean, I guess you could still call Russia, you know, west of Russia, those cultures, Western. I don't Europe. think the Russians would call themselves Western. So, okay. uh, it, it wasn't a thing. Wasn't. I mean, we didn't really have it here. They didn't have it in England, um, but they brought it with them, and all the bartenders in England were trying to figure out, okay, how, what can we do with this? And somebody came up with the Bloody Mary. And I don't think it was called the Bloody Mary initially. Mm. Um, I can't remember what the original thing was, but they started with something, and here they started doing it in the U.S. They called it a Red Snapper. I could be wrong. That might have been the U.K. where they called it the Red Snapper. But anyway, the Red Snapper, the interesting thing about the Red Snapper is now that's what you call a Bloody Mary if you put gin in it. Huh. So, but for all records, <laughs> all records indicate that the Bloody Mary was originally a vodka drink. I hope I'm proven wrong on that because I really want this to be another one of those cocktails that is gin-based and somehow got co-opted by vodka. Um, but anyway... I don't know where I was going with this. Where was I going with this? I'm not sure either, but, uh, but, but anyway, I will no, now... I, I know I'm going. Sorry. <laughs> You're my guest, and I'm going to keep interrupting you. That's all right. Um, no, I, where I'm going with this is I am... I don't want to say reclaiming, because like if it indeed did originate as a vodka drink, then I'm not really reclaiming. <laughs> You're just claiming. It's more like claiming or conquering. Uh, I'm going back toward... you know I, I drink red snappers because they have gin in them. <laughs> but whenever I'm on a, if I'm on a plane and I order Bloody Mary, tell them I want a Bloody Mary, but I want gin in it because I want it to taste like something. I don't, I, I don't want tomato flavored ethanol. <laughs> I feel like Absolute probably makes a tomato vodka at this point. I think they do. I'm pretty sure they do. Um, so this has been fascinating. The the story that I always heard was that the Bloody Mary was a Harry McElhone drink from Paris in the twenties. Um, no, I think you're right about that. I think it did start, and I think I got, I think I fucked up my facts. I think it was Paris. But the, the story that you just told might, in fact, be the same story, just in the wrong city. Because uh, why the hell would there have been a vodka drink anywhere outside of Russia in that era, um, unless it was Russian expats? And and it was right after the Russian Revolution that it was supposedly invented. So that's an angle I've never heard before. It does make sense. But you were right, though. You're right about Paris, because now I'm remembering. I got confused because I was remembering um, a season of Peaky Blinders where a bunch of 
you know, <laughs> former Russian royalty ended up in Birmingham, and um, I. But you're right. I just remember because you're right. It is Paris. Sorry about that. Well, see, the interesting thing though is that in your defense, uh, Bloody Mary, in all other contexts, would seem to be an allusion to Mary Tudor, the 16th century queen, Catholic queen of England, who came after Henry VIII and Edward the. Seventh, I want to say. Yeah, no, you're right because it was it was invented in Paris, but I think when it made its way to England, I think they that might be where it acquired it. the name. I think that's yeah. where I think that's where the name comes from. The drink actually itself, I can't remember what the the French name for it was, but that that was created in Paris. Okay, that's why I was going to start. So for me personally, I'm not a huge Bloody Mary fan to begin with. I'm going to drink something in that family. I would sooner drink a Bloody Maria, which is the tequila-based version. I think the tequila does very well with sour, salty, and savory flavors, and that's a Bloody Mary. Um, the best Bloody Mary that I've ever had is someone, again, who does not like them. is one that I made myself. A few years ago, I went off on a kick where I was trying to do as many classic or classic-like recipes as I could using wholly New England source ingredients. I'm, I'm from the Boston area. I'm very big on New England as a region. So it's got Dunkin's in it? Uh, no, although Harpoon now makes a Dunkin' coffee stout or porter, uh, which I've not yet tried, but it's literally, you see the, 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 the box of the bottles has the same pink and orange branding as Dunkin' Donuts with the DD logo on it. It's like, this is, I don't know that the world needed Boston to make a beer inspired by Dunkin' Donuts. That's that's a little bit. It's a little bit. It's it's like you know Ireland making a potato whiskey cocktail. It's we, you already thought all of these things about us. We don't need you to think them that much more. Well, it's like Rogue did the voodoo donut thing in Portland. Oh, I didn't. I, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's funny. See, I see. I just assumed this was sui generis and silly, but apparently it's part of a broader tradition, which is great to know. Yeah. I think they probably stole how how recent is the harpoon one because they feel like they stole the idea from Rogue. I've only noticed it in the last maybe 2 to 3 months. Oh, so definitely cuz the I would the, guess so. The the Rogue thing probably goes back a decade. Oh, yeah, the, definitely. I mean, they might have come up with it on its on their own or stolen it, but in any case it well postdates the Rogue one. Um, the Bloody Mary though. There is a vodka from Maine, which is very black pepper forward, which I don't usually care for. Uh, it's called Cold River, um, but in this context it worked. And it was that with fresh tomato juice, maple syrup, apple cider vinegar, and a basil leaf garnish. Again, all things that you can source in New England. Um, and that I actually like. The maple added a wonderful richness. Tomato juice is like orange juice in that it's sort of its flavor per unit of sweet or sour is never quite as useful as you want it to be. So that extra sourness from the cider vinegar meant that you could use a smaller quantity of tomato juice and make it a little bit more of a flavor accent than sort of a, a filler. Um, and that I thought worked very well. Uh, in the spirit of the New England cocktails, I called it the Bloody Maker Berry Eddie, which is uh, the founder of Christian Science, who's from the Boston area. The Christian Sciences faith has their has their Vatican essentially oh. in, in the Back Bay of Boston. Um, that's a great. If you have any listeners from Boston, they'll find that very funny. And if you don't, I have nothing to say to them. Uh, <laughs> I've got a couple. <laughs> great. Um, uh, yeah. So long and short of that, I've never had the red snapper, the gin version of Bloody Mary. Uh, I imagine I would like it more than the average vodka version, but the tequila one, I think, is is a is a solid drink on its own. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I I, I appreciate the tequila one. 
Um, the best yeah. bloody red stamper I had was uh, it was created. Uh, I, I believe it was created by a guy by the name of Peter Barrett, who goes by Muddled Earth in social media. He is now a bartender in Great Berlin. Handle. Yeah, no, it's awesome. He's now a bartender in Berlin, but he was one of the staff bartenders for Gin Festival in the UK. And when he left a couple of years ago, and Gin Festival ended up going belly up, and mm. they got yeah. bought by somebody else, and now it's Gin and Rum Festival, a completely different organization. <laughs> but, but the officers and the sailors of the Royal Navy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so he created one, and it's um, and I was making these um, around Christmas too, and it was really kind of cool. They um, I used his exact recipe. And it takes, you know, it's got tomato juice, but it's also got beet juice in it. And that Ooh. gives it this almost purpley color. Um, and then, you know, it's got like celery salt and uh, various things like that. And it, it just really, really works. And I, and I make it with, you know, it's, it's with gin. The original version, he used celery gin from, um, you know, uh, from Ruta in, in the Netherlands. They have, a, they have a celery gin. That was his original one, but, you know, it's hard to find. So. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I, I try to sort of compensate for it with a little more celery salt, a little more savory stuff. But you know, and then they have this um, this British ingredient that is essentially like the English Worcestershire sauce, and it's hard to find it in the states, so I just use uh, Worcestershire sauce for it. But okay. uh, but it's really good. You you should give it a shot sometime. I'll, I'll send you the recipe because it's really please do. It's a great drink, and it really will make you appreciate the bloody a lot better. And Worcestershire sauce is a truly ancient flavor profile is is the closest thing we have now to garum which was what the romans used the way we use ketchup in the states now sort of like fermented anchovy paste they put on absolutely everything because uh, of course they didn't have tomatoes at the time so tomato-based condiments don't make any sense um yeah the, the closest modern product that's widely available is worcestershire sauce so you're you're in a multi-thousand year old tradition if you're drinking something that has that in it Oh, interesting. I, I was not aware of that. I mean, I knew that tomatoes were relatively recent cultivation, but mm. I, I didn't realize that uh, Worcestershire sauce profile is actually new. Oh, I mean, the old, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the, the Romans would make... Pe- there's pizzerias that we've excavated in Pompeii. Or the, the pizzas we're talking about will have cheese on them and they'll have garum. So essentially Worcestershire sauce. Wow. Yeah. So they were making pizza way back in Pompeii, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then was it, was it like a form of mozzarella? Was it... I'm not sure what the nature of the cheese was. Um, I mean, the, the Romans had sufficiently advanced agriculture. I'm sure they had developed some strain of, of cheese that was particularly good for melting. But I don't know how much continuity there is between that and modern mozzarella. Mm. And it's an interesting question. <laughs> I want to find that out. So what are some other uh, tidbits from your book that, that people should know? That Something that surprised you when you were writing it? The thing that surprised me the most, I think, in the whole book was uh, the relationship between the strength of your drink and how intoxicated you'll become. Because we always assume that as a sort of linear scale, right, the stronger the alcohol, the the stronger the alcoholic drink, the more alcohol gets into your body, the drunker you get. And that is absolutely not true. Um, That holds up to about 20 to 25 percent alcohol by volume or 40 to 50 proof. And then after that point, it starts to come down again. So per unit of ethanol consumed, you will get drunker 
with a 20% drink than with a 40% drink. Um, which is to say, if you imagine, say, a shot of vodka and a shot of vodka mixed with a shot of water, that second thing will get you drunker and sooner than just a straight shot of vodka will. And the reason for this, at least the, the, the believed reason for this, is, is the phenomenon of gastric emptying, which is the rate at which stuff leaves your stomach. Um, your stomach has mechanisms to keep stuff in it longer or to move it out faster. And uh, so like, if you eat a lot of food, a big meal will slow down the rate at which alcohol leaves your stomach, moves into your intestines, and gets absorbed into your blood. There's some absorption in your stomach, but it's a s relatively small percentage of the overall um, result. Uh, and above a certain strength, alcohol works the same way. Your body looks at it and says, that could be poison. We need to hold on to that in the stomach for a longer period of time and break it down as much as we can before we let it go and be absorbed. Huh. And uh, yeah, after about 20% ABV, that, that effect outstrips the increase in ethanol per drink. So if you want to stay sober, drinking just straight hard liquor is not a bad choice. Uh, the one caveat I will say here is that how quickly you drink does matter. So if you would drink two glasses of whiskey uh, in the same time that you would drink a whiskey cocktail, you're probably better off sticking to the cocktail. But if it's the same speed, the glass of whiskey will keep you soberer than a cocktail that uses the same amount of whiskey. I am speechless learning that, I, honestly. It's super weird. It is super weird. It's something that I've applied in my own personal drinking, although certainly not consistently. Um, but that that is just such a bizarre thing. And it, even as I say it, 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 there, it makes a degree of evolutionary sense, a biological sense, but it's so counterintuitive that it should be that way. Um, but doesn't the... the the dilution from all of the cocktail ingredients, doesn't that play a role in your own sort of perception that this isn't very strong, whereas when you're drinking a neat pour of whiskey, you're drinking it slowly and you're drinking it more deliberately than, say, I don't know, a, a whiskey sour, which almost tastes like candy? Yes. Uh, and, and so all of this is, every everything that's in the the whole sixth chapter of the book is about things that are supposed to get you drunk faster or keep you sober longer and whether they work or not. And this is in there. Um, and everything in that chapter is, it's always all else being equal. This is true. Um, so if you imagine the glass of whiskey and the whiskey sour, same amount of whiskey, you're going to drink the, if you're drinking them at the same speed, you'll get drunker with the whiskey sour than with the glass of whiskey. However, it is often the case in practice that people will drink their straight spirits much faster. Uh, frankly, it, it, because people, maybe not your listeners, but people often are drinking their straight liquor in the form of shots. And it takes a lot longer to drink a cocktail than it takes to do five shots of whatever. Um, and five shots of whatever will 100% of the time get you drunker than one cocktail with an equal amount of spirit to the shot. Um, and and it, is, it is also true that uh, people, people's drinking speed is affected by perception. Um, so one of the things I address is the, the advice along the lines of beer before liquor, never been sicker, liquor before beer, you're in the clear, grape or grain, never the twain. Um, never heard that last one. I, I've, I had heard it as never mix grapes and grains, and when I was writing the book, I found a British version of it that rhymed, which I decided to use. Uh, because what I like to tell people is, if you're ever given advice that rhymes, you should be very skeptical of that advice. 
Um, that is usually a sign that the thing that was most important to the person giving or coining the advice was not the truth of the statement. Okay. Uh, but if, if there is any sound basis in the claim, beer before liquor never been sicker, and again, there is no hard scientific evidence in favor of it that I have found, but the, the one plausible explanation that I've identified is that you get used to a certain speed of consuming liquid over the course of the night, which is affected by what you are drinking to begin with. And if you're drinking beer, you're going to be, you know, unit of liquid over time is going to be faster than if you start drinking spirits, because you have some sense that spirits are stronger because they, they taste stronger, more astringent, more pungent. They burn a little more. Um, and I would not be surprised to learn that oftentimes people who start an evening drinking beer and only later move to liquor are drinking their whiskey or their rum or their gin more rapidly than they otherwise would because they've been acclimatized to a certain drinking speed over the night so far. Um, again, that is a hypothesis that explains why that might be plausible in some cases. There is absolutely no hard evidence that that is a universal truth, and there's no reason to believe that if you're drinking speed is appropriate to what you're consuming, that whiskey will get you any more or less drunk if consumed after beer rather than before. Um, but a lot, a, lot of, a lot of our experience of drinking uh, is psychological, both the effects and the process of consumption. And if we get used to a certain speed of drinking based on one thing, we may not appropriately recalibrate with the next thing. I'll give you another very brief example. Um, okay, looks like we have a steamroller coming through. <laughs> One of those famous San Antonio steamrollers, which actually does sound like a cocktail from the 1980s that would use amaretto, peach schnapps, and blue curacao. A San Antonio steamroller. Did you just make that up? I just did. And with the hard, it's like vodka and that, and maybe sours mixed. You've got a San Antonio steamroller. You can take that to the bank, folks. I've just invented it. It's probably terrible. Anyway. Um, at the very least, it sounds like it would make a good roller derby team. <laughs> San Antonio Steamrollers. That's good. That's really good. Um, right. The other example I wanted to offer is uh, the, the shape of your drinking vessel. It's been demonstrated that, I forget the precise number, but it's in the ballpark of 10%. Uh, if you compare drinking beer out of a perfectly cylindrical glass and drinking it out of a tapered glass, which is what we usually drink beer out of, yeah. you will drink it faster in the tapered glass by something in the ballpark of 10%. It might be 7 or 12 or somewhere around there. Um, excuse me. And the reason is essentially that human beings are absolute garbage when it comes to... Well, we're that too. We are garbage. Specifically, we're very, very bad at instinctively estimating volumes in any sort of container that isn't rectangular or cylindrical so when we have to start accounting for how the the like the surface area of a slice of the liquid changes as you move up and down the glass we lose all ability to figure out how much we've had to drink um and so we we treat those tapered vessels as if they were cylindrical and we sort of drink the larger layers at the top at the same speed that we would drink a layer in a cylindrical vessel and that continues right on down to the bottom so we go through the, we end up going through the volume of, of the beer faster than we otherwise would. 
And there are other things that affect it, but that to me is sort of the funniest one. It's like, oh, it's not all that interesting that loud music makes us drink faster, which it does. But that could as easily be that when the music is loud, we have a harder time having conversations, and so we just sit there and drink. You know? or, or it's just like, I just can't wait to get the fuck out of there. Let me finish my drink even faster. Oh, I know that feeling very well. <laughs> um, whereas this is, is really just about the way we perceive the volume of the glass and the way we, perce we perceive how much we've had to drink so far. Um, you know, we get to the midpoint on a tapered glass and like, we've had half the beer in the glass and we have had much more than that. Uh, what is your go-to drink? Oh. Um, so I'm a, I'm a rum drinker by preference. Um, and I this is aged or silver aged but aged preferentially although truth be told all rum is good rum in my book and I've had bad rum and I would still drink bad rum as opposed to not drinking rum most of the time um, no it there, there, this is purely psychological and and I apologize but I'm gonna bring in another topic from the book That's here fine. Yeah, yeah, please do. so quick and dirty version of this the experience of flavor is something that is generated in your brain as the result of inputs from various senses. Principally, taste and smell, other things can play into it. Um, and smell in particular is a very, very strong memory trigger. The sort of raw, unfiltered scent data hits your, the memory centers of your brain before it goes anywhere else. Uh, which makes evolutionary sense. You want to be able, as an animal, to identify, like, this is good to eat, this is bad to eat, and to have a visceral attraction or revulsion to those foods. Um, and smell is a huge component of flavor. Your tongue picks out five different things that we know for sure, sweet, salty, sour, savory, and bitter. Depending on who you ask, there are people who have postulated a few others, but maybe upwards of ten or a dozen. But the nose picks out tens of thousands of different things and millions of combinations of those flavor chemicals. And the combinations are encoded individually. So nutmeg just smells like nutmeg. It does not smell like citrus and evergreen and camphor and generic baking spice, even though those are the constituent smells. You can't pick them out. You just smell nutmeg. Um, and so all of which is to say that a, that a lot of people I have found, especially people who drink a lot or in the hospitality industry, but I repeat myself, um, have very, very strong associations positively with some category of spirit. And for most of the people that I know who are like that, it's whiskey. And for most of the rest, it's gin. And those of us who are rum people are a, a minority of the minority, but we definitely exist and we gravitate towards tiki drinks unsurprisingly. Um, like Jeff Berry is one of these people, the, the tiki historian. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but so I'm, I'm a rum person, and I know that it's completely psychological. I know there's no actual difference between drinking rum and drinking other things, but when I'm drinking rum... It is, it feels almost like I'm doing a whole different kind of drug. Like there's the feeling of being drunk and then there's the feeling of, ah, there is rum in my body. Which, and it's, it's silly because it's all in your head. But, I, but that is how that feels to me. And I know people who feel that way about whiskey or gin as well and tequila as well. Um, although I also know a lot of people who feel that, feel a very different sort of sensation when tequila is in their body. Usually because they drank too much of it in college. Um, and so I'm a rum drinker by preference uh, and in terms of favorite cocktails I, I go in cycles there's a handful of drinks that I really love and will kind of for a few months I'll be on a Paloma uh, actually I will be on a Paloma kick sometimes or a Palmetto kick sometimes or a, you know uh, right now I would say 
if if you if you ask me like what is the cocktail that someone could make me every day for the next month and I wouldn't be unhappy about it? I would say a Hemingway daiquiri offhand. Oh. So, you know, silver rum, lime grapefruit, maraschino liqueur, and simple syrup depending on your tastes. Do you go to the Keys at all? Or? Uh, so two cousins of mine, and I, I come from a big family. My mom has six sisters, and I have 17 first cousins. Wow. Yeah. She has 56. Thank God. <laughs> keep track of all those people. Mostly we don't. We have family reunions every couple of years, and uh, it's awkward because I'm usually, in recent years, I'm usually the one coordinating them, and I will walk into that room, and there will be a bunch of people who remember me because I planned the last one and was sort of at the door saying hello. I couldn't tell you most of their names. Wow. Deeply awkward. Um, the hell was I saying this? Right. Two of my cousins, long before I ever got into hospitality and quite independent of it, uh, happened to they, – they were bartenders in Nantucket and then happened – one of them took a trip to Key West and said, oh, no, 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 I'm staying here. And then his brother went down and visited him and said the same thing. Um, and so the older of the two got married there a few years ago, and I went down to Key West for the first time. And Oh, man, what a town. Yeah? I've yeah. actually never been. I recommend it very highly. It's the only one of the keys that I've personally been to, although my parents have been down a couple of times since then and have, have sort of done the drive from, from the Florida mainland and visited various of the keys. Uh, Key West is a lot of fun. It's a very hospitality industry-driven town, unsurprisingly. It's a sort of tourism industry-driven town. Uh, but it is, the, it is the sort of place, um, kind of like New Orleans and I would say New York and San Francisco, where... The hospitality industry is sufficiently large that, like, a big chunk of it caters to tourists, and then a, a, a large minority caters to the massive hospitality industry population that oh, consequently yeah. lives in that town. Uh, so you, you can have some really great drinks in Key West, and you can have some really great bar experiences, independent of whether the drinks are good or, or, are good or not. Um, but it's a, it's a fun place to go if you like rum drinks especially um uh there's some decent tequila bars down there and of course ernest hemingway used to live there yeah. and there's the hemingway house down there which is a really really interesting place to go and take a tour and his his shadow there is not quite as long as it is in havana from what i understand although i've never been there um but it is it is long enough there are bars in operation in key west that hemingway would have gone to mm. um and they're very proud of that and they're very much as they were when he was there um, and yeah, yeah, I'd say overall, for me especially as someone who likes those kinds of drinks, uh, it's a great place to be. Did you did you ever see the James Bond movie License to Kill, the Timothy Dalton one from thirty years ago? I have not seen License to Kill. Well, there was there's a scene in it. There was <laughs> I bring it up. Um, there was a scene of it that takes place at the Hemingway house. Um, really? And. It was. It's actually the scene where he actually has his license to kill revoked. M shows up because I'm sorry. There's a literal license to kill in the movie by that name. Apparently, apparently James Bond has a license to kill. I don't I know just, if it's a little laminated card he carries around, <laughs> but there is the double O. I'm a member of AAA and the Diners Club, <laughs> and I have a license to kill. <laughs> well, apparently that's what distinguishes the double O agents from the other agents in MI6 ah. is that they actually have a license to kill. I, I guess it means that they can 
assassinate people with impunity? I don't know. Yeah, but that, that seems like a dangerous power to hand out, <laughs> even in fiction. But anyway, he was on a personal vendetta because um, what happened in the movie was he was like the best man in Felix Leiter's wedding, Felix Leiter's mm-hmm. CIA contact, and um, uh, Felix's bride was murdered on their wedding night because okay. there was a like, whole cartel kind of deal. And, and Felix was like fed, you do. Yeah, and Felix was fed to sharks, but he survived. He lost some limbs, but he he survived. So so Bond goes on this personal vendetta, and M really needs him to be doing something else. <laughs> uh, so M goes, you know, he's like he's trying to knock some sense into him. M flew in from London, and and then Bond doesn't relent. So M says, "Well, your license to kill is revoked." And then Bond goes, well, I guess it's a farewell to arms then. And they're at the Hemingway house, so <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, that, I, the only time I brought that up, because it's I, like, it's, it was Hemingway. We were, we were talking about Hemingway. I feel like this shouldn't make me want to go and watch License to Kill, but it did. It's not a good movie. No, it doesn't sound like a good movie, but nevertheless, I want to. Although I will say Timothy Dalton is highly underrated as a Bond. I thought Living Daylights... I've heard that. Yeah, Living Daylights was as good... I would say it's almost as good as Casino Royale. Um, in okay. that... That's when Bond started to go in a different direction. This was long before Daniel Craig. Mm. Um, and But Timothy Dalton was sort of doing that intense, sort of earnest, serious thing before Daniel Craig was doing it. So it seemed like they wanted to go in that direction because because hmm. Roger Moore had gotten so cartoony, and they tried that with with Living Daylights, uh-huh. and and it was actually there's actually a timeless quality to Living Daylights. The reason I know this is because I I recently watched all of them again in order because I was working on a book about geek drinks. All of the Bond movies. All the Bond movies. Wow. And there's only 24 of them. It's not. It's not a huge. 24 endeavor. movies. Is I didn't a do it in one sitting. I didn't do it one sitting. It's like over the course of like a month or two. But um, <laughs> but it was um, but like one of the things that I, I saw about it was they um, I don't even know where the fuck I was going with this now but um, me neither this is fun yeah I don't know why we're talking about this but um, we got from Hemingway to James Bond which is a fairly short well, jump admittedly well there's a lot of drinking in James Bond so <laughs> it's just the point is that um, and womanizing oh I, I know what I was saying it was like there was a timeless quality I'm probably gonna cut most of this out anyway. <laughs> There's a timeless quality to the Living Daylights because they shot it, they shot most of it in Vienna. I think it was supposed to double for Bratislava, which at the time was still communist mm-hmm. and um, it was still part of it was still Czechoslovakia at that yeah. point too. Um, but it was they shot it in Vienna. It was very obviously Vienna, and um, so. But I mean, it, it brought a timeless quality to it. The, the location, the cars seem timeless like the the hairstyle of the main bond girl in that was timeless so it was like that movie would fit anywhere but then they followed up with license to kill mm-hmm. which didn't perform as well at the box office wasn't as well received and it was very very 80s to a fault okay like it was so it was so interesting about it was 80s so and i think that but it still had sort of a seriousness to it that and I, and I don't think any of it was Timothy Dalton's fault. It's unfortunate because I would have preferred to see him do another ten years mm. rather than then bring in 
Tim, uh, Pierce Brosnan. Well, I thought Pierce Brosnan's yeah. movie sucks. The, and and that also may not be entirely Pierce Brosnan's fault, but the no, probably Brosnan. the Brosnan era was a really like I, I, cartoonish. Isn't even doesn't seem like it's quite the right word, but this sort of self parodic version of James yes, Bond. Yeah, it was very very self aware, and that was and it started going in a direction with Roger Moore, and it felt like they were scaling back on that a little bit, but then mm. they just like leaned into it when Pierce Brosnan came around. Yeah, I mean, okay, Goldeneye not. Goldeneye was okay, mm. and they, they sort of reined it in a little bit. And the video then, game was great. I never played the video game. <laughs> um, N64, it's a classic. I recommend it. Okay. <laughs> but I think that's Very like, little to do with the plot, <laughs> mind you. <laughs> I think that, um, but yeah, but after that, like, Tomorrow Never Dies, and then mm. the world is not enough. And then in friggin', what was it? Die Another <laughs> Day. They got an invisible fucking car. I'm like, yep. come on. Yeah, that movie sucks. Yep. The diamonds are forever. The guy with the diamonds in his face. Oh, well, no, that was that was Die Another Day. That was Die Another Day. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diamonds Are Forever was was a Sean Connery, which oh, is no, the I get worst. The worst of the Sean Connery films, and quite possibly the worst James Bond movie. It it tells you something that all the it seems like the worst movies are all diamond driven. Just yes, exactly. You're making a Bond film. Stay away from diamonds. You'll be fine. Well, you're not fine, but you'll be better off. I mean. I would say that, you know, the whole concept of smuggling just isn't interesting. Yeah. But, but then again, you look at Goldfinger, and that was more or less nobody was gold, but it was still a smuggling sort of basis. I mean, there was obviously a lot more to it than that. Same thing with Diamonds Are Forever. It was more than just smuggling. They were building this super weapon that fired lasers from space. Right. <laughs> and they recycled. They, they recycled <laughs> a lot of the... Um, a lot of those plots too. I think in the Pierce Brosnan movie, like the laser beam from space. I think that may have even right. been in Die Another Day or one of those movies. I can't even keep track. Oh no, I think it was Goldeneye. Goldeneye kind of recycled that plot, which was weird. Well, it came. It, it started out in Moonraker, didn't it? That was a, that was a space laser. <laughs> Moon, yeah. Movie. Moon, well, Moonraker was. It was. Uh, well, it was just a space laser thing. They were they were shooting, like missiles that were gonna sterilize the earth and then they were creating this and and kill people I guess mm. they were going to kill everybody on earth and they were creating a new race of superhumans in space and this is this is how far the bond franchise had sunk by 1979 they were based uh, the thing with moonraker it was the late 70s everyone was trying to capitalize on star wars and uh. they actually fast tracked that one because originally the next movie was supposed to be um, For Your Eyes Only, which was the most grounded in reality Roger Moore movie that had mm. been made. They got rid of a lot of the gadgets, and it was just, with the exception of some really bad acting in it, um, it was a decent movie. But, but Moonraker, they, they fast-tracked that because of Star Wars. Like, we've got to do a space movie. And right. I mean, granted, it was only like the last 30 minutes of it actually took place in space. But, mm. <laughs> but it was a... So yeah, we we've we turned this now into a film commentary podcast. Yeah, let's go, let's just, I want to bring this around to travel. Yeah. We talked about Key West. Um, are you born and raised in, in the Boston area? Or? Born and raised in the Boston area. I have lived in Middlesex County, Massachusetts, my entire life aside from college. And where do you recommend people drink? Where do you like to drink in Boston? 
Uh, I recommend the people drink at drink. Um, easy enough to remember. Very easy to remember. Uh, it's a Barbara Lynch group restaurant. Restaurant is a strong word. Bar. Very much. It's it, like they serve food, but it's a very much a cocktail-focused place. It's a drinkery. Indeed, drink is a drinkery. It's in the Fort Point Channel neighborhood, so it's a very short walk from South Station. Uh, if you come to Boston by train, and easy to get to from other places if you don't. Um, the uh, the I suppose it is a gimmick, but I don't think of it as one. The the shtick of drink is that they have no cocktail menu. They have a beer and wine list, but no cocktail menu, and they have no visible back bar. There are no bottles to be seen. Okay. Um, you can see, you know, the blocks of ice and the citrus press and the big bowls of lemons and limes and grapefruits and oranges. But that that's it. And and the row of bar books on the back shelf as well. Um, so if you're ordering a drink there, and there are places like this in San Antonio and other towns, but if you're ordering a drink there, it's either you ask for a name cocktail, have a widow's kiss, view curry, whatever, um, or you say, I'm feeling something spirit forward with tequila. And the bartenders will go and make that for you. And it's the sort of place that... People, people who are bartenders at drink don't leave unless they're becoming bar managers somewhere else. Like, it really is top-flight bartenders to the city of Boston working there. What about brand ambassadors? Are they really going to become brand ambassadors? <laughs> um, I, it, that happens occasionally, although what, what has seemed to happen more often is that people who work at drink will start doing brand work and continue working at drink. Ezra Starr, who's the general manager there, does a lot of uh, sort of cognac education as well um, and is affiliated with I don't want to say the wrong brand now I, I, uh, so I'm just going to say she's affiliated with one of the major cognac companies but does sort of non-brand specific cognac education as well but she still works at drink and she tends bar occasionally and is the general manager there uh, and that has worked very well they, they'll do education classes on you know sort of less busy nights and afternoons as well that are open to the public and to industry. Um, but that is the place that if I if I have friends in town who, uh, you know, they're there for one night and I'm taking them to one bar, we're going to drink. We're getting there at 4 p.m. on Saturday, which is when they open that day, and we are going to have five rounds, and, you know, we can be in bed by 1030 if that's what you want to do because we'll have already had five rounds by 9 p.m. Um other really great places in Boston that I'd recommend, Hojoko, um, which for those of you who remember Howard Johnson's, is actually where the name comes from. They're in the Verb Hotel, which is a little two-story boutique hotel next to Fenway Park in a neighborhood that in the last five years has been sort of pop-up city. Everything is 20 stories tall, luxury condos, hotels, and offices now. But the Verb is still there, and it's an old Howard Johnson's. And the, the restaurant is, is Hojo Ko. Mm. Um, Hojo is being an old nickname for Howard Johnson's, but it's a Japanese-style restaurant. So when you see that written down, you say, oh, Hojo Ko. That's a Japanese word, I'm sure. Um, and what they're doing is like the tiki spirit, but with more of a Japanese inspiration rather yeah. than a Polynesian one. And so they, they do a lot of classic tiki island resort cocktails but within that flavor. So, mm. like, they had the best blue Hawaiian that I've ever had, and it's a shoju base, it's the, the oh. Japanese spirit. Um, and everything is, is very playful in the way the traditional tiki was very playful. They do that very well. Um, I would also draw your attention to Back Bar in Somerville, which is uh, the, the vibe there is it's like having cocktails in your artsy friend's loft apartment. Um, 
they're also very playful, but in sort of more of a classic cocktail than a tiki cocktail style. I don't know if they still do, but they used to have uh, a weekly milk punch. They'd have a milk punch special, different every week. Oh. And that was something sort of crazy that they would do. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll say one more, and that's the Eastern Standard group. So Eastern Standard, the Hawthorne, Island Creek Oyster Bar, that whole family, Jackson Cannons, Bailiwick. Um, they do really, really excellent drinks. And of those, my favorite is the Hawthorne, which is the one that's most drinks-focused. It's subterranean. There's no sign. Um, it's part of a hotel, so it's not like no one knows that it's there. But it has more of a lounge kind of feel to it, as compared with Eastern Standard and Island Creek, which are very much restaurants. So those four, Hojoko, Hawthorne, Drink, and, Ho and uh, Back Bar, are the places that I would send somebody who's looking to drink cocktails in Boston. Any... Uh Places you like to drink outside of Boston, places where you travel, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so a few uh, offhand. If you're in New Orleans, uh, I'm a huge fan of Jeff Berry's Latitude 29. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he, he is the Tiki historian, and he has done a wonderful job uh, doing that in a contemporary way very, very well. Both food and drinks-wise, the sort of Asian and Polynesian-inspired food there is excellent. Um, in New York, uh, a place that your listeners might not be aware of is Solomon and Cuff, which is a rum bar on the west side in Harlem. Oh, cool. um, and the, the guy who runs it, he's got a couple of establishments there and one in New Haven, but uh, he, he really he knows his stuff, and it's an entirely rum concept, and the food is very Afro-Caribbean, and it pairs very well together, and the rums are excellent, and the cocktails are excellent. Um, Let's see. I mean, I, I'm, I have a soft spot in my heart forever for employees only, also in New York, which your listeners may be more acquainted with. Uh, their cocktail guide, Speakeasy, was the first truly good cocktail book that I ever owned and is probably responsible for a lot of the direction that I've gone in in terms of this industry. Um, and, and they are one of the few bars that I've gone to in New York and felt they lived up to my expectations which are sky high for any bar in New York that you've heard of to begin with, in fairness. Um, so all of those are places that I'd recommend. Um, if you find yourself in New Haven for any reason, I would send you to a place called Ordinary, which is, uh, it used to be a very old school, like immigrant beer bar in New Haven, very like a sort of wood panel, looks very old fashioned, 19th century kind of place. It closed in 2012, that was Richter's, and it reopened, and it's now a craft cocktail bar. Um, and they do excellent work there. And they keep to the traditions of the old place. They still serve half yards of beer, which was a big thing at Richter's. Richter's also used to serve whole yards of beer. They don't do that anymore because that is really dangerous. <laughs> but they still have the whole yard glasses on display. Um, and I'm trying to think of other places that I've been that I would really strongly recommend. Um, so... I, you know, I don't hear so much about it anymore. The Violet Hour in Chicago is a place that I like quite a lot. And that was one of, uh, in, in sort of the early days of the cocktail revival, I put together a list of bars in various places that I wanted to, so my bucket list of bars. And in a way, because it has been so successful, that is a ridiculous project today. There are so many good bars in so many places. But the Violet Hour was early enough that it was on that list for me. And I went and I was very pleased at that point, that probably nine years into their existence, that, that they were doing very well. Um, I'll, I'll give you two more, just because I'm, I'm kind of on a roll now. Keep uh, going. 
One is a distillery in New York City. Um, the distillery tour of all the ones I've been on, I recommend most highly, is Kings County Distillery. In oh, Brooklyn. of course, yeah. Um, and full disclosure, I sell their products in Massachusetts, but uh, I also went on that distillery tour, I think, twice before I got the job selling their products. It's really good, and it's a very fun distillery tour, especially. Um, and the other one, if you're traveling abroad, uh, I was in London in September, and I made my pilgrimage to the American bar at the Savoy Hotel. And that place is fucking incredible. Oh my god. Um, I, I was absolutely blown away. And it's, it's amazing because it's, you know, they created the Savoy Cocktail Book. They've been around for the better part of a century. They're a known quantity. And they also took Best International Bar at Tales of the Cocktail last year. Um, like, they're still doing really high quality stuff. And the, the, the I think, the two examples I would cite for them, I, I ordered a Corpse Survivor number one at some point, which is first attested in their cocktail book. And surprise, surprise, is the best one I ever had. Yeah. Like, they know how to do that. But the other experience that stunned me was I ordered a Palmetto, which is one of my favorite cocktails, aged rum, sweet vermouth, and orange bitters. And the way that this bar is laid out, you sit, for the most part, you're sitting at tables. There's a piano in the center of the room. There's like a six-seat bar at the back end, but... The, the bar area is really more of a service bar, um, and the drinking experience is done with waitstaff and table service. And so I don't know if the bar, how, the, how well the bartenders knew this, but the waiter, when I asked for a palmetto, was unfamiliar with the drink, and I had to tell him what it was. And he came back with the best palmetto that I've had in my life. Wow. Like, I, I am almost hesitant to order it at other bars now because the bar has been set so high. Um, and so I, I will say, you know, it's not a cheap place to go out drinking, but if you're in London, go to the American bar at the Savoy and order off menu because their cocktail menu is a lot of very innovative stuff that tends to be 23 pounds a cocktail. And you can get classics incredibly well made for 15. And that's a that's a much better choice, I think, for that environment. So uh, tell people where they can find your book and where they can find you on social media. <laughs> uh, right. The book, again, is called Distilled Knowledge. It has a long subtitle that I can never remember. The publisher chose that, not me. Um, Distilled Knowledge, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble through their website or their stores. Uh, I have found that most cities have at least one sort of quality local bookseller that also sells it. San Antonio, it's the Twig. Uh, in Boston, most of the bookstores have it, but the Boston Shaker... The sort of local cocktail supply shop also carries it. Um, you can get it if you want a signed copy. There's a little treat for your listeners. You can get it directly through me. My website is the HerzogCocktailSchool.com. So that's www.herzogcocktailschool.com. And I will ship it anywhere you want. Signed copy, personally inscribed if you like. Um, and you can find me on social media uh, through the Herzog Cocktail School Facebook page. Again, H-E-R-Z-O-G Cocktail School on Facebook. And that'll be me. And as always, you can find me at Jeff Cialetti on Twitter and Drink Up the Globe on Instagram. And remember, the world is out there. Drink it up. Amen to that. The Drinkable.